This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I can never get back when I get to you. Welcome to Strike Talk. Branch Rickey was a genius. He was born in Stockdale, Ohio, and spent his whole life in baseball. In 1919, he devised the minor league system that baseball still uses today. He once said, luck is the residue of design. In 1945, as general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Rickey decided to smash baseball's hateful color line by putting a black player in a Dodger uniform. That player was going to be Jackie Robinson. Rickey was a staunch Methodist. Religion ran bone deep in him so much so that he wouldn't attend his own team's games on Sundays. Part of what he admired about Robinson was that Robinson was a Methodist too. But the first person Ricky told about this decision wasn't the team's owner or the team's manager. It was the Dodgers' play-by-play announcer. For this reporting, by the way, I want to thank the great sports writer, Kostya Kennedy, and his book, True. The team's radio announcer then was Red Barber, a legend in Brooklyn. He called a ball field the pea patch. Back then, listening to a game meant crowding around a wooden box radio in your living room. So Barber was literally in people's homes, a part of the family. He mattered. Ricky wanted Barber to know about Robinson two years before Robinson would actually play for the team because Barber's endorsement of Robinson would be vital. You see, Barber was from Columbus, Mississippi. He had grown up amid the violence of the segregated South. Barber had once seen a black man tarred and feathered by the Klan. Ricky, who believed the color line was indefensible morally and insane economically, was actually warning Barber that the decision had been made. He told Barber, if you cannot bring yourself to call games for an integrated team, you should seek another job. Ricky was fierce. Barber, 37 at that time, went home and told his wife he was leaving the Dodgers. His prejudices felt too great to overcome. She got him to change his mind. So when Robinson took the field two years later, forever changing America, Barber, in his slow Southern drawl, was reporting it to all those families around all those radios. That mattered because Robinson's story was, of course, not just about his brilliance on the field. It was also about the hostility he faced from opposing players and managers. It was about the vicious racism Robinson got from opposing fans and Brooklyn fans, too. It was about Robinson having to stay at different hotels than his teammates and Jim Crow laws, not just in the South, but in places like St. Louis. Barber reported it all, and with it, his own disgust and shame. His storytelling helped to lionize Robinson into the hero he truly was, all the while converting fans who had held on to the old and vile prejudices that Barber himself had once held on to. It matters who gets to tell the American story to the American people. It always has. In 1968, when CBS anchor Walter Cronkite called the Vietnam War unwinnable, 
President Lyndon Johnson said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the country. And one month later, Johnson decided not to seek re-election. If Tom Hanks tells you, this is what it felt like to land on the beaches at Normandy, or this is what it felt like to be inside Apollo 13, or God bless him, this is what it felt like to be kidnapped by Somali pirates, we believe him because he has earned that trust through years of honest performances. All storytellers endeavor to do that, to reflect America back to itself. This is how we got Roots, MASH, All in the Family, Mad Men, In the Heat of the Night, Platoon, stories that changed us. It's why I wanted to tell the story of Donald Trump and James Comey, and why I fought to get that miniseries aired before the 2020 election. It obligates us now, that we're working again, to show the America of 2023 to itself, however painful that may be. It also obligates us, on a more interpersonal level, to tell the story of the two strikes that have now shut Hollywood down since May, to frame them. Here's why. In 2008, as the WGA strike was ending, writers were so thrilled to be off the picket lines, they didn't notice a massive wave of misinformation about the strike beginning to permeate Hollywood. The misinformation took the form of two giant lies. One, that the Guild had actually lost the strike. Two, that the strike had somehow caused the 2008 recession. The second lie was so dumb, I can't even comment on it. But the first lie had real and damaging effects that contaminated our membership for years. I saw them firsthand. It impacted how writers felt about asking for anything in the next few contract years. It made people gun-shy, uncertain. That was by design. I still periodically meet writers who don't know that the strike of 2008 gave us jurisdiction over the internet, which ever since has been by far the fastest growing revenue stream in the entire guild. Already, we're seeing articles online whose goal seems to be denying the gains the guild just won. Some of that is just contrarianism for the sake of clicks. Some of it is angertainment. But the PSYOP of it is designed to weaken the resolve of the guild still on strike, SAG. The idea is to convince actors that the WGA didn't really win and that they won't either, which is why we have to be the ones to tell this story. We're the only people who can get it right. We just saved writing as a profession, period. And in so doing, we may have saved the business. And we have to tell that story again and again, online, in the press, to our kids. We must shout it from rooftops. We must repeat it to members of IATSE and the Teamsters and reinforce it in every meeting. But most importantly, we must carry it with us to the picket lines where SAG members once joined us. We must remind them every day, we won. You're going to win too. We have to encourage and inspire now. No one but us can. Once, Red Barber had to tell the story of haters to haters. It's now our duty to tell the story of Hollywood to Hollywood. It is this. Organized labor has rediscovered its power and its voice. And organized labor is going to save the middle class in this business, just as unions will soon do nationwide. That takes balls. And sometimes it takes strikes. SAG, you've got both. And it's your turn at bat. We're proud to be on your team. To discuss that, I have with me three members of SAG, three brilliant performers. Please welcome Clark Gregg, Ashley Nicole Black, and Robert Wisdom. Hello to you all, and thank you for being here. Hi. Thank you, Billy. Thank you. Ashley, I'm going to start with you. You and you and Clark are both uh, members of SAG and members of the WGA. So tell me, what is the difference between those two unions? Was there a difference between the way uh, they approached the strike? Was there a difference in the way they struck and are striking? What are you hearing out there on the lines? I'm a member of the WGA East, which is like even smaller than the WGUS. It feels like we're like 30 people in a room in New York. So um, 
that has always felt very grassroots to me. Like I can just call up staff or our leadership and say, like, have you guys heard of this problem? Comedy variety writers are having this problem. Black writers are having this problem, whatever it is. And then we see those things reflected in our pattern of demands pretty closely, the things that I see writers talking about. And so this action with SAG, I've actually seen the same thing. It it felt like it started very grassroots. I was talking to my girlfriends, hearing about these issues and everyone sort of saying like, are our voices going to be heard? And then when we did have the opportunity to see SAG's pattern of demands, that's what it was. It was like a list of the things that we had been talking about. So that was actually really positive to see that similarity um, during this action. Clark, is that your experience too? Yes. I, at a certain period, I was working mostly as a screenwriter for a while. And, um, and I still continue to write when I'm not acting and do the other stuff. So I certainly watched the DGA start the negotiations as they did. I had an instinct early and I was kind of getting into it with a friend in New York, I was like, I don't understand why we're not all doing this together. I don't understand why when the corporations bond together to make an alliance to set the terms from their end, uh, it just seems like that's exactly, okay, if that's what they're supposed to be doing in a healthy capitalist environment, it seems like the, the workers who are creating the product should be able to be just as aligned, just as synchronized and, uh, and as you have said many times on your amazing podcast, it has felt like things have been changing and not for the better in terms of the economy of trying to be someone who does this over time and raise a family. I have a 21-year-old daughter who's just now getting into it. And so I was very conscious when I was on the lines, first as a member of WGA, that I'm there for her, that there's another generation behind us. And... And it's really, you know, it's it's up to us to fulfill what unions have done in this country, which is, you know, create health insurance, all the things, all the things that we wouldn't have if it hadn't been for previous strikes. Robert, do you feel like your voice as a member of SAG is heard? I mean, you're in a you're in a guild of 160,000 people that can be hugely unwieldy. Do you feel like your voice is heard? Absolutely. I, I think. What we've all discovered is is the power of labor and the power of uh, the unions. Uh, there was a a moment when there was a bit of malaise when old the older generation was giving way. This was probably late '90s, early 2000 when that old system was was passing away, and and the new generation hadn't embraced the enthusiasm. What I see now is real enthusiasm on the line. I see a vocabulary that's penetrating deeply about what labor is and understanding of uh, labor history. And um, and so there's a, a fuller context. People aren't just angry, but they understand that there's nuance in, in how to organize. Our business is one of the most humanizing, uh, uh, we call it entertainment, but in fact, what we do is create relationships. When people watch TV, when they watch movies, they go together, they talk afterwards, and it's it's a center point for, for our lives in, in mostly good ways. It's also very vulnerable to manipulation. So I think what this strike is is providing is, is uh, a deeper understanding of our function in the grid, in the, in the national grid and societal grid. 
it's a tough one. It's hurting a lot of people, but we, we also are able to see that it's not just darkness, but there's a really bright horizon if we get the questions right. We talked on this show, um, I forget which episode it was, about how much an actor has to make to qualify for health benefits in SAG. Um, the number is $21,470. And we talked about how few actors actually get to that number. Um, I, it was 12.3% uh, of, of the Guild actually gets there. And we also talked about an actress uh, that, that I had interviewed um, who in 2022 had booked 13 jobs, 13 jobs on streamer episodes and didn't get to $21,470. Of course you guys went on strike. That's insane. Ashley, have you been seeing that, feeling that out there prior to the strike? Did you know prior to the strike how much hurting was happening inside the guild? I think I didn't know the extent, but what I had noticed was similar to what writers are getting is deals became like, this is our only offer, take it or leave it. And often the deals were sort of like um, artificially pushed down. So if you're a guest star on a half hour, if you're doing two or three kind of meaty scenes, you would expect to be a guest star. And they were booking those actors as co-stars. So I could easily see how you could book 13 roles across the year look like you're guest starring and all those roles look like you're thriving but when they're miscategorizing them as co-stars and everybody's making minimum then you're not making health insurance so i was definitely seeing that happen to friends especially those working on the streamers um and i think there's this misconception that if that's happening to you oh you have a bad agent or you're not famous enough or you know whatever and i think what this exposes is that like no it's happening to everyone. Um, even very famous actors are working for minimums now because they're really doing this thing of this is our only offer, take it or leave it. Do you want to work? Clark, did you find that true too? Yes. I saw this. I saw this a couple of places. I did a, a television show for seven seasons, essentially on a major network. And the first, I don't know what, I guess there was a year or two when it kind of aired, the reruns began to air on a network on TV. And and then very quickly, it ended up on a streamer, uh, a, a streamer. And that's where it lives now. And suddenly, you know, COVID may be something when people are watching, residuals are how my family gets to be okay. But the residuals, once it's on a streamer, nosedive to almost nothing. Because of the last strike, as you have said very clearly, no, 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 the internet's not a thing. And the day after the strike, they announce Hulu. And you know, I love, I have a lot of friends who are executives who work at studios, but there's a thing that you've talked about, which is a, an element of partnership where we're all in this together. There's a business we love. It's more than a business to us. It's an art form that we love. And we're all here to, in the best interests of everyone, keep, a, keep a, a middle class at least going so that there are people to bring in to guest star to do these things. Then I did a Netflix show I guess two years ago, and they and it was similar. It was people I was involved with, friends of mine really wanted to do it, but it was seven out of eight episodes, and they wanted to call it seven guest stars, which just drives your price down. And you're like, I'm going to fight this a little, but I just come on. And then of course, by the time it came out, it was seven, and I was in all seven of them. And I, you know, that's not something I'm going to get any more money from, and it's. 
you know, I guess they say, well, that's the deal that you can make. But then you go, okay, well, then you get to have a strike. How does a strike uh, disproportionately affect people of color? Is that true? You know, I've stood next to people on shows that I've worked on who literally have relatively smaller parts. And I come to learn that, you know, what they're taking is, is you know, a third larger than what I'm taking. I've worked, uh, like Clark, I've worked on uh, streamers that uh, <laughs> I can put, I have about four shows on Netflix and um, I can put all the residuals in a teacup. I'd probably say that um, for the most part, people of color are getting generally a third uh, smaller quotes, uh, smaller fees than non-minority actors. That's a correction that I hope seriously in clear language gets addressed in uh at the negotiating table uh, because that correction is just as we fell behind after the, the the last strike with the internet issue and so forth if we fall behind right now on the issue of black latino brown actors uh and what they what they can get on a on a show and what they can get make to to make a living uh if we don't get that set right then we're going to be way behind the eight ball yeah, 100%. I would say that's also true on the macro level. So even as individual performers of color are getting paid less, shows that are made or geared towards audience of color are also very much underfunded. So even if that showrunner, that producer wants to pay actors a better rate, the overall budget for the show is so small that it's just not possible to do. And we see the studies over and over again, the greater the diversity of the people on camera, the um, higher money making potential of the show and movies like this is the makeup of the audience. This is what they want to see. The shows are often really popular and everyone working on them is working for far, far, far below their quotes because the entire show has been underfunded. So. I don't know how an MBA addresses that, but one of the way is raising all the minimums. So at least the minimums are higher. At least that's going to bring up the overall budget, but it is a, an issue overall. So now let's go back to May and early June. What were you thinking in May and June? Um, did you think SAG was going to go out? Uh, was there a part of you that wanted SAG to go out because everything was so broken, it just had to be torn down and, and, and rebuilt? Or did you believe that a deal was coming? I did not see it coming, to be honest. I figured SAG would make a deal um, until I saw the back and forth on AI um, when I saw that it was the studio's proposal to film a background actor once and then use them in perpetuity. That to me forced a strike because the background actors are obviously like the largest constituency in our union. And if you make it so that they can't have a career and they can't work, you're decimating, like the literal word decimation, <laughs> decimating the union. Um, and so at that point I was like, oh, it's inevitable. We have to strike because we won't have a union if we lose this huge sector of performers. I would say yes. I mean, what I recognized early in the year as, you know, the rumble started happening. I knew that the, the studios wanted to lessen the impact of the unions. So I could see it coming. I knew this was going to be the absolute breaking existential kind of moment for uh, the creative uh, entertainment industry and the creative end of it, the, the actors and writers. All the stuff that we were seeing and that I learned 
in one of your podcasts earlier in the year with the three uh, SAG folks, there were so many things in there that we have to fill in loopholes. We can't even get them all back. You know, all we can do is provide some caps in some places. The acceleration of the rotting out happened uh, when the streamers came on board. And if we don't get this stop now, it's done. It's a done deal. I, I have to I have to agree with Robert. I'm, the echoes of what happened 15 years ago in terms of streaming and how once streaming started to see the way that just all the income streams were kind of gutted to allow people to continue doing this, it I felt like there was a real wariness on our part because as you said, we were backed, we were backed into a corner. And I don't think anybody saw a way out. It felt like, I think you've put it existential. It felt like there's this can't go any further because it's something you certainly, I mean, if you pay attention to the news, you just, you see this happening all across the country. And it was actually one of the things I found kind of inspiring about the strike is that there is a way where driving corporate profits has become almost like the monotheistic God in our economy and in capitalism in a way that, I don't think reflects true democratic values. And, and I think that there's a reason why strikes are happening all around. And maybe this is a healthy correction of a healthy economy is the union say, wait a minute, there's a way to do this that doesn't gut the thing for Wall Street and allows it to continue to grow and thrive. And I felt like that's what we were trying to do. From the beginning, we said on this podcast that the strike was not about fairness, most people in America feel that they are treated unfairly. The strike was about extinction. The strike was about survival. And AI seems to embody all of that. What is the threat of AI to actors? And does it feel existential to you? I heard a, a quote from uh, somebody who's at the center of, of the development of, of AI, Google and Microsoft. And he said, already, uh, language learning technologies have loaded on a trillion words. A trillion words is more than we'll ever use in all 10 lifetimes. What we have to get right is basically, how do we keep what actors do, what actors provide, what writers do, what writers provide as a very clear, distinct element that AI can't duplicate, AI can't do. We have to figure out a clear language for that so that we can mark our territory and create the boundaries that we need. It's not, we're gonna get consumed in 25, 30 years. That, the, the whole film industry is gonna radically change the way that movies are made, the way stories are told. But we have to maintain the integrity of what we do for relationships in society, what we create as a humane, creative uh, uh, element of society. I know they're not in good faith uh, uh, the studios aren't in good faith at the table because every corporation does a five, 10 year plan. Their five, 10 year plan included everything that they wanted to do with AI. They know what they want to do. And that's what we have to get uh, claw back and be as sophisticated uh, because as AI gets more sophisticated, it's going to be harder to do. I think it's really imperative, not just in our business, but in general to sort of revalue what humans do and the authenticity of human expression. 
Um, so like I was on a black lady sketch show, we carried a small group of background performers for the whole season and they were hilarious. And when you cut to them, they're just as funny. They're at that party. They're living in the moment. They're responding. You simply cannot convince me that building a model of just bodies put in that space is as funny or as real or as authentic as like a 30 year old woman who's lived her whole life, who has been to a bunch of parties, knows what it feels like and has a feeling of judgment about what that character is doing. And that second of cutting to her face is important because someone in the audience feels that way. Someone in the audience looks like her. Like I remember when I used to shoot commercials, one time we shot a commercial in the store that it was a commercial for and people were shopping while we were shooting for some reason, it was very bizarre. But I turned the corner and this woman was shopping and she looked exactly like me. Like I was there to represent her, a customer for this store. And you might say, oh, it's a commercial, who cares, it's a little thing, let AI write it, let AI act it. No, I'm sure it means something to that woman that the store that she shopped at cast a person who looks like her, who also shops at discount stores, who also, you know, has opinions and feels cool when she puts on the sunglasses she bought or like whatever it is. And I feel like we're getting to this weird point where we want to pretend that context and human life and authenticity don't matter. And it's like, oh, that's a picture of a girl. And that's a picture of a girl who cares who made it. And I'm like, well, if the woman who drew the picture has dealt with body image issues her entire life, she draws it differently. And those little differences matter and they're important. Um, and I just think that we need to put a, a line in the sand and insist on that. One of the things that I was talking about in the intro was our responsibility to reflect America back to itself. Um, that's what we do as, as storytellers. How can AI possibly do that? Well, what, they're, what they've already proven is that AI by necessity reflects the biases of all the information that it's scouring off the internet. My dad used to say a thing, if you, if you miss the first moment of truth, you may not see the second one. And I feel like there's this thing, just because we can do something, does that mean we should? Because not to get too, I don't know what, grad schooly about it, but when I see something I love, whether it's on a streaming network or a movie, I'm seeing the human soul kind of brought to life in an absurd, funny way or a really deep, magical way. And it's how we kind of collectively come to this. There's a reason we talk about it the next day. Oh my God, did you see this? I'm not going to tell you about it. Don't spoil it. Oh my God. Because then we know there's an experience that is us. And I don't believe that AI will be able to replicate that. But I do feel like there's the same thing, which is a drive. To, well, if it's going to make money, we're going to do it. If, it's, if someone's going to make money out of having an AR-15 in every hand in this country, it feels like there's momentum to do that, even if it's terrible for human beings. Yeah, I think in terms of the wealth transfer is something that is happening in our industry in a very visible way because actors are very visible, but it's happening to all workers everywhere. And when this action started, I saw a lot of like, well, aren't all the actors rich? Why are you asking for even more? And I think that myth has been dispelled. We're not all rich, but even if we were, what is a fair percentage of the amount of money that's generated by a product when someone made the product with their body, which is what actors do, and it's what most workers do. And that transfer from, and I always think of, 
I was on a show one time and my character was drowning. So I had to pretend to drown, which for people who have not acted, that means you got to drown. That That's what it is. And whatever money is generated from the airing of that episode, someone who is sitting in an office somewhere in air conditioning is going to make more money off of that than I did for drowning in dirty water. <laughs> like that's what we're talking about. We're using our bodies to make a product and someone else is making the money off of it. And that is something that I think all workers need to a realize is happening and come in solidarity with each other about. And I do think those divisions of race and gender and other things like that are used to sort of trick us into thinking we're on different sides of the thing. And it's like, no, if you get up in the morning and you go somewhere and you use your body to make money for someone else, we are all in this together. We are all workers and we all need to right side the way the money that we're making is being distributed. Amen. Tell me your stories. Part of why I think actors can't be replaced by AI is because there's no one in the world but you who has your story, um, who has your voice, your pain, your history. Can you tell us a little bit about what made you, what shaped you? I mean, I don't know. That's such, I find it perplexing a lot of times. My dad was a historian, a civil rights worker, an Episcopalian minister. And certainly later after I started doing theater in New York and saw the things I was drawn to and the things I produced as the artistic director of the Atlantic Theater Company and the things I started to direct, I realized there were themes in common and that there was a desire for a kind of what we're talking about. How do narratives shape our understanding of what the point of this country is and what the future of it might be and in an artistic form? And... I mean, to go a little bit to what Ashley said, but that meant doing theater and, you know, happy to do it. It was, it was dramatic. I loved it. I'm scooping quarters out of the couch at 36 to get a slice. You know what I mean? And my parents were like, you still sure you want to do this? And I'm like, yes, I was on Broadway. Shut up. Um, my father is also a minister. I think it's weirdly common at one point on this at the Second City, they have a cast of six and all six actors were children of ministers. So there is um, a connection there. Um, so, I, yeah, I come from a long line of ministers and my mom's always worked in nonprofit. So really always grew up with this sense of responsibility to um, reflect the world back to itself, but in a healing and a comforting way. Um, but I also come from a family of very silly people where being funny is highly valued. Um, and so I, all I ever wanted to be was an actor from day one, from a very small child. And I would be watching like private practice. My parents would be like, do you want to be a lawyer? It's like, no, I want to pretend to be one on TV. What aren't you people getting? Um, but when I was growing up, there weren't really people who looked like me on television. So it seemed like an impossible goal. I went and did a PhD. I, I did a lot of other things. Um, and then I eventually came to writing and writing was sort of my intro into acting because I could write things for myself because nobody else was writing for me. Um, and the few parts that were written for me were always negative. <laughs> um, so I, I, acting was always my first love, but I came to it from the side door of writing, but it was really always about sort of being honest about humanity and what's going on in the world and what's real. Um, and often honesty makes people laugh. And so I landed in comedy, but um, 
I, my dad and I always joke that we have the same job. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, my mother and father, my, are immigrants. Um, they came to U.S. from uh, West Indies, Jamaica. Acting wasn't directly on in, in my radar at all. Um, you know, they 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 emphasize education. Um, they sacrificed and put me through a private school in in D.C. and uh, I went on to college in New York, and then they, um, you know, room two twenty two and all of this stuff, and you know, it was always there that uh, someplace this was interesting. So I took an acting course by end of my senior year, and the bug bit. Uh, but you know, I went on to work on Wall Street. I went on to work at NPR. I, you know, I did all of these things because I didn't know how to do this. I didn't know how to break in. We we didn't have any contacts or any of that. Uh, so it was through a wrong number that I got my first movie part after acting for years. I was, you know, Michael Moriarty was one of my teachers and he said, you know, you can do this. And and uh, that gave me enough encouragement. But, you know, casting director missed out by one digit and got my, you know, friend of mine's number and left a message looking for an actor and he passed it on. And that's how I got a, a role. But the things that, that, that stick out for me are the days I went to Ralph's with a big water jug of of pennies to kind of, you know, like pour in that machine to, to, to just get through the week, you know, and that kind of, and when I knew that I was willing to do that and I was committed to this thing that, you know, I had to see it through. Um, and I remember getting, when I got the movie face off and they gave me a, a schedule F contract, I thought that was a world, you know, I know that that was a ripoff in fact, but, um, but, you know, you don't learn these, you learn all of these things when you learn them. And right now, uh, as, as a quote unquote, a veteran in this business, um, I'm now willing to stand beside brothers and sisters and say, it stops here. And uh, this, I understand now what fairness really means in this business. Um, I'm not looking for them to make me a, a billionaire but I, I am looking for, uh, you know, a, a business where I can make a fair living, an equitable living. Um, and that's what's being denied. But with a callousness that I, I really don't understand. Um, but I do understand when I, when I look at the corporate psychology and what runs, uh, as, as Clark said, you know, the whole money mania, money is God. And as long as money is God in this country, um, there's no place for a devotional practice like making the arts. We're going we're gonna to wind things down now. Let me give you each one minute to say whatever you want to your fellow actors um, on the picket lines right now. You can. This is your show. Ashley, we'll start with you. I think this action is going to end soon. And a lot of us are going to go back to work. Some of us are going to have a harder time going back to work. That's the nature of labor action. Um, but the your individual action doesn't have to end when the strike ends so people who have been awakened by this who have realized as robert was saying wait a minute this wasn't fair the way i was treated on you know three movies ago 10 movies ago yesterday wasn't fair continue to pursue that don't be oh the strike is over let's go back to work and pretend everything's fine for three weeks stand up for yourself and more importantly stand up for those actors standing next to you who don't have as much of a voice as you do check in with 
the that co-star, that guest star. Check in with background performers. Make sure that everyone's okay because you don't necessarily know what practices are going on on the set that you're on. When you come out of the trailer and show up, you don't know if background was called 10 hours ago and they've been sitting in the sun that whole time. Make it your business to know. Make it your business to stay in solidarity even when we're not explicitly in a labor action. The fire that's been lit has to keep burning strongly, brightly. Uh, echoing Ashley, we have to walk, and when we walk on set, don't walk by the the background artists. Spend time with the crew. Spend time, you know, on set. Don't go back to your trailer right away. But really understand that this is a huge, incredible family that we have, and we all are part of each each other's destiny. Um, it's so important that that um, that we that we feel. Uh, that our purpose in life is not just getting up on the screen or seeing our, our names on a single card one day, but that in fact, there are lives that are being touched. And I meet people every day uh, who, who remind me that somehow we touch lives. And in doing that, you have to ennoble your role, ennoble your, 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 yourself as an artist that is significant in society, whether it's background, foreground, or whatever you want to call it, you know. The fact is, is that we are all important, and that we, that without us, the strike doesn't happen. Everybody on that that strike line, ninety percent of them are background artists. We owe them this 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 moment because they are out there sweating in the sun, standing in for, you know, for the industry, and uh, that's really what it is. I just believe that the fire has to continue to burn. We understand labor history. We this this show is going to be archived. Listen to these, you know, to Billy's monologues because there's so much to learn there. You know, listen to, uh, take notes and study so that when we go on, we have a, a some kind of substance in our soul, in in what they want to render into a soulless kind of art. This strike has been difficult and painful for a lot of people directly in what we do and all across our business and especially coming out of just got out of a pandemic. So when things get difficult or painful, I try to shove my chin back towards gratitude. And what I feel grateful about in a quick list is I'm grateful to have time to talk to you guys and to spend time with these incredible artists today who I don't normally always cross paths with. There's so much about our business where we're often in Los Angeles and New York, where you're just off in your separate corners and you come together to do a job sometime for years and then you split up. And the, I feel so grateful for the community that has been rediscovered out on the picket lines. I go to different places just so I can see different friends I haven't seen for a while and to see people working in different, with different problems and different issues that I might have. Um, and I think that one of the things that I, that I really feel most grateful about is there's a feeling, and it's part of one of those narratives that I think possibly needs to get challenged, where as an actor, you're like, you're lucky to be doing this. Oh, you'll never make it, blah, blah. And, and it, there's a hopelessness almost to it. And you're, you're, you know, you're, if you don't do it, I got five other guys who walk in. I think what came out of this was no. And whether it's a background performer, whether it's three lines, I've done all those gigs, or whatever it is, this, this, this is a necessary thing. 
it's an art form that's valuable. And to see the value of when it shuts down for a second, at least you get to see, no, your story's needed. Whoever you are in this business, you're needed. And that brings me to my last part of it is the way that crews, people who are like family to me, have suffered through this and in support, not easy for them, and that they're part of a union action that might be coming up as well. I think it's really moving to me the way that all the craftspeople who put just as much love and time into trying to make this as we do have shown up for us, and I hope we can show up for them. We're going to have that opportunity next summer when IATSE and the Teamsters take their turn at bat. We're going to leave it there. I want to thank all of you. This has been extraordinary. Now more than ever, I find myself back where we began, thinking about Branch Rickey. Turns out he had a lot to say about acting and he never even knew it. Remember when he said luck is the residue of design? Robert Wisdom just told us that his career began when a casting director misdialed by one digit leading to Robert getting his first role. Lucky, right? Sure. But Robert didn't get that role because a casting director misdialed. He got that role because he was ready when that casting director misdialed. He had studied, he had pushed himself, he had prepared himself to act. Clark did the same thing, learning his craft while scrounging for quarters in his couch to get a slice. Ashley nearly drowned in mud, also for pennies. That prepared her for the roles that were coming. All of them persevered, and the struggles made their work richer, truer, better. Some industry observers think the writers got lucky when SAG went on strike, hugely bolstering the power of the WGA. But the WGA and SAG had been talking for years about shared issues. The two guilds had prepared for this moment dutifully. Now the WGA has established a framework that SAG can build on, and SAG can use it to establish a beachhead for future contracts. This is opportunity meeting preparation, two guilds benefiting from one another's steadfastness, artists who cannot be replaced suddenly owning that. Jackie Robinson spent a lifetime preparing to become the most famous and important athlete of his era. He was ready emotionally, physically, spiritually when the call came. He was equal to the moment. And then, miracle of miracles, the Dodgers happened to have a general manager whose Methodist upbringing required him to find someone worthy of breaking a 100-year taboo. By this time next week, I think SAG and the AMPTS will have a deal. And we will all feel lucky, but it will actually be the residue of a design. I want to thank my fantastic guests, I want to thank my great producers, David Farino and Hannah Baker. Please join us next week when our guests will be Gloria Swanson, Lillian Gish, and Errol Flynn. This is Strike Talk. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.